Well, good morning, and uh, thank you for joining us today, whether that be online or here in person. We are grateful that you're here. Let me uh, get my timer going here. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 15, as we continue this series on uh, the one another's of Scripture. And as you turn there, uh, I will bow in prayer, and I ask you to join me. Heavenly Father, we come before you to, um, to sing your praise, to declare that you are good and that you are worthy of our adoration and our worship and our devotion and our submission. Father, as we think of who you are, it is an astounding truth to me that you are humble, that you think of us, that you care for us, and that in particularly in rescuing us from our sin and coming to save us, you, um, you put our needs, our need for redemption, our need for forgiveness ahead of your own desire. Well, not ahead of your own desires, but ahead of your own comfort, certainly. And you thought of us. And we are so grateful for that, Lord. And and yet, in in great contrast to that, we admit that we are selfish and self-protective. And and we we seek to uh, protect ourselves and our own reputations and uh, our own perceived good when the example that you set before us was that you did not protect yourself, but that you allowed yourself to be, not only to become part of your creation, but to suffer and to die in our place. And Lord, we thank you that there is redemption for us from that selfishness and from that self-protection. Lord, we are reminded of this forgiveness in your word from Ezekiel 36, 25, where you tell us that you will sprinkle clean water on us. We will be clean from our uncleanness and from all our idols. And we thank you that in Christ you have forgiven us of, of all that we have done against you and against your law and against your nature. Father, we ask uh, your blessing on uh, some of those who we care for uh, but uh, are not among us. Lord, we think of John and Aaron Brennan who uh, amidst the COVID-19 and, and lockdown where they are Uh, need health care but are unable to travel to get it. And we think now of the fact that they've been out of water uh, for a week or more uh, and are having to haul water to their home. Father, we uh, we ask that you would uh, just give great grace to them to have patience and to trust you in this time. But Father, we pray that the water might be restored and they might be able to have the convenience of water right in their home. But Lord, also uh, that you would provide uh, for the health care needs that they have, particularly for their children, and that they might, um, uh, that they might be, uh, there might be treatment or, or some other form of care for that situation, Lord. Lord, we think of those uh, closer to home, more among us, Lord. We think of Melinda Brennan and, and the return of her cancer and uh, the seeking of, of treatment for that as she'll be uh, traveling soon and, and seeing more doctors and trying to figure out what the future holds. Father, we ask that you would give great grace and peace there and trust. Lord, we ask for uh, her healing 
and that there might be treatment to bring health to her. Lord, we thank you for uh, the gift of life to Max and Laura. We thank you that uh, everybody in that home is healthy and that they get to enjoy um, the presence and, and be able to hold this new little one in their family. Lord, we think of the Gordons and, and the loss and the grief that that family is going through uh, right now. Father, we thank you for the hope that they have in Christ. We, we thank you that for those of us who have believed and have trusted him, death can do nothing but deliver us to you. And, and yet it is difficult to be left behind. And so, Father, we pray that their hope would temper their grief, but that, um, but that your church would care for them, would love them, would serve them well, and, Lord, that you would strengthen them in this time. Grant them comfort uh, as they walk this difficult road. Lord, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would give us open eyes and soft hearts to be able to understand your word and to be able to obey it and to love it and to cherish it. Lord, as a church, let your word sound forth from us in Walla Walla and beyond, Lord, that, uh, that those who have never heard of the greatness of Christ might hear from us of what you have done for us in Jesus and rescuing us. And so, Lord, as we turn to your word now, we ask that you would um, use it to conform us more and more into the image of Christ and to bring a great peace and harmony about in your church. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Follow along with me as I read to you uh, Romans chapter 15. Maybe we can bring the gain on my mic back down a little bit. It's ringing pretty badly out here. Uh, Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Many of us have probably heard of the 16th century German reformer Martin Luther. If you know much of Luther's story, he was a Catholic monk in Germany and uh, he had a very uh, deep unsettlement about his own sin. He knew his wickedness, he knew his depravity, and he knew that he did not deserve God's grace. He struggled to believe and to understand that, that simply making efforts to repay or to be penitent or particularly for Luther to give money to, to satisfy this guilt in him was not working. He, uh, in, in this great turmoil, uh, there was a, a, another member of his group that cared deeply for him and tried to move Luther into different positions to, to help him with his struggle. He sent Luther to Rome. And for Luther, Rome was going to be, uh, in his mind, the, the most incredible, most holy, most God-glorifying place 
he had ever seen. Instead, what he found was more pieces of, of wood than could make a cross that were allegedly portions of the cross and, uh, and, and many other artifacts that people could pay money to, uh, to see and to earn time out of purgatory. He found that the other priests uh, in, and, and monks, but particularly priests and bishops in this area were very, very sinful and this great hope he had of this holiness of, of Rome, it just, it fell apart. He was moved into a position as an instructor in a Catholic seminary uh, to teach others about the Bible. And in his study and in his reading of Romans, he came across Paul's statement early and several times in Roman, Romans that the just shall live by faith. And re Luther realized that it was not his own penance or penitence or his own works that would save him from his guilt, but that it was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his simple trust in Jesus as the only means by which one could be justified by God. And then in one day in October, 502 or 503 years ago, Martin Luther marched to the castle church door in Wittenberg and we see it in movies, this nice clean door and Luther with a big hammer and nail. That's not what it would have been. The, the, the church door in Wittenberg would have been a community bulletin board. It would have not been unusual to post something there. And Luther himself probably would not have posted it, but one of his students would have posted his infamous 95 theses. 92, I think it is, of the 95 theses were on uh, the, the Catholic Church's... Um, well, now I'm going to forget the name, but the, the payments that people could make to buy time, indulgences, the payments that people could make to buy time out of purgatory. Uh, he did not intend necessarily to start the Reformation. What he intended to start was a discussion, a discussion about what Scripture has to say and how it bears on, on, um, on how we live and how we understand faith. His students... Uh, against his wishes, published a pamphlet of the 95 Theses and of some of his other writings. And ultimately, most of us know the story, it lit a fire in the Catholic Church. Ultimately, he appeared uh, before, uh, in a trial in what is called the Diet of Worms, where the Catholic Church asked him to recant of his position that justification before God comes solely by faith. His books were laid out before him. He, they were, he was asked if they were his writings, and he affirmed that they were. And upon being asked to recant, he gave a lengthy discourse, but he ended this discourse with these words. He said, I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience, conscience, is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. Luther then left the Diet of Worms, was condemned, was given time to put his affairs in order, and was going to be arrested and imprisoned. Some of his students, uh, uh, completely him being completely unaware of it and against his uh, knowledge or wishes, uh, arrested him, or really kidnapped him, took him and hid him, and he continued to study and write after they had done so. I find it interesting, after being convinced by Romans 
and by the word of God of justification by grace through faith alone, that when Luther was asked to recant, he appeals to conscience. I think the idea of conscience is a, a reality in our lives that has kind of lost emphasis in the church these days. Doctrine is what one believes. It is a matter of truth. It is a matter of right or wrong and is usually, even though we don't always agree on interpretations, and that's okay, matters of black and white. Conscience, however, is, is the convictions about how one should live their life based upon the truth of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And God has given us the gift of conscience, a little bit like Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio, to keep us out of trouble. Church history, like Martin Luther's day, is full of dispute and division over doctrine. But often, the church is full of dispute and division over matters of conscience. A matter of doctrine might be something like Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a truth. It is in God's word. There is no way around it. But a matter of conscience for Christians has varied throughout history. Can Christians drink but not get drunk? Should Christians entirely abstain from alcohol altogether? You'll find faithful believers on both sides of the matter. It is a matter of conscience. And examples abound in the church of matters of conscience. Must, I use that word intentionally, must a family homeschool their children? Or is it wiser to put your kids in public school and disciple them while there? Is, is it better to sing contemporary worship songs? Or is it better to have hymn-based worship? Scripture is more clear on some issues, but the debate still rages. Should Christians obey the Old Testament law and follow the feasts and the festivals or not? How are spiritual gifts to be manifested in the church? What about baptism? Should we baptize babies or baptize adults? What about the leadership structure of the church? Elders and deacons versus an elder with deacons versus a presbytery. The debate rages on today and far too often creates division. Now, these are not the first or maybe even the greatest debates in the church. For the church in Rome, and very similarly for the church in Corinth, which we see right after reading the book of Romans, the issue was meat sacrifice to idols. So, uh, we'll just say a cow might be used in a, as a ritual sacrifice in pagan worship in this day and time in Rome and Corinth, and then the meat from this sacrifice would have been taken to market and sold. And some of the Christians in Rome and some of the Christians in Corinth said, it's absolutely wrong for a Christian to eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. We cannot participate in that. Others said, what's an idol? It's nothing. It's just meat, buy it, and eat in good conscience. The interesting thing is Scripture never forbids it. Scripture never forbids eating meat sacrificed to an idol. And so here we have the consciences of two groups in these churches that draw a different conclusion. They know Scripture speaks clearly to idolatry, 
that, that Christians are not to participate in idolatrous practices or worship, but it doesn't say whether or not you can purchase meat that has been used to, uh, to be sacrificed before another idol. And because Scripture never forbid it, some said it was okay and some said it was not okay. And Paul addresses both churches in Corinth and in Rome with an aim to unity, not with an aim to solving the debate. How easy would it have been for Paul to say, yeah, it's right, some of you need to get over it. Or for him to say, yeah, it's wrong, some of you need to stop. But he does neither, particularly focusing on the conscience in Corinthians, he calls for the church amidst disagreement on how this matter should be handled to be unified. How in the world is a church to be unified when it does not agree? Well, we'll talk about that today, but why is this such an important matter to Paul? Well, in John chapter 17, we frequently call this Jesus' high priestly prayer. It is his prayer the night before he goes to the cross, and in that sense, it is his dying wish. And what is his great for the disciples, and not just them, but all who would believe in them. Read John chapter 17, and look who Jesus says he's praying for. He is literally praying for you and I the night before he dies. And his prayer is that we would be one as he and the Father are one. This is why the apostles give such great care and careful caution to the matter of unity in the church. In Acts chapter 6, when we see the first deacons formed and equipped to do their work in the matter of the church, the issue at hand is not so much important as the threat to unity before the church. And the disciples jump in and they, they act swiftly to ensure the unity of the church. So, back to our passage, rather than telling these churches how to resolve the issue, he tells them how to have peace. Now, I want to make a bold statement, and before you get up and walk out or turn off YouTube or wherever you might be watching today, I'm going to ask you to hold, in, hold on. It seems to me that the matter of how the church ought to respond to COVID-19 is today's meat sacrifice to idols. That the church is divided in its positions. Even within churches, the church is divided. Some say we must gather, even in disobedience to authorities, because the church is commanded not to forsake the assembly. And Christ is in charge of His church. And I would affirm that Christ is in charge of His church and that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But there's also Scripture that says to obey every governing authority. Some say we should obey. Some say we should disobey. Some say the matter before us is fake, hype, political. Some say it's very real. Some say, I, I, you must wear a mask when we gather. Some say, I will not gather as long as I have to wear a mask. And sadly, both sides are more worried most often about being right than being at peace. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus did not die so that you and I could be right. He died so that we could be at peace with God and with each other. 
And yet we entrench ourselves in our positions in matters of conscience that Scripture does not speak specifically to. Scripture does not address how the church should respond to quarantine or to pandemic. I've heard about more pastors recently being stressed out, burnt out, ready to quit, tired, unable to make peace than ever. I've seen more tweets on Twitter from people in positions of leadership in seminaries and other organizations calling churches to pray for their pastors. I'm not claiming that I am under this stress because I'm not, but I'm seeing it in many people who I know and love. Why is there so much stress for the church in this matter? Well, I think this is how it unfolds. First, as I've already said, Scripture does not address how a church is to handle pandemic and quarantine directly. There is not a list of instructions for what to do in global pandemic. And so we must apply knowledge and wisdom and conscience to draw a conclusion about the wisest course of action for the church to take. Once we have drawn a conclusion, and quite naturally, and I'm not criticizing this, we tend to believe that our conclusion, our wisdom, our conscience is the right one. And then, when others don't agree with us on our positions, we begin to criticize and accuse and disagree with and argue with other believers. The result in the church is division, accusation, and disharmony. Now, what I'm not going to tell you today is how to think about COVID-19. And what I'm not going to tell you today is what I think the church ought to do as a plan in response to COVID-19 either. But I do want us to look at God's instructions to the Romans on how to treat each other when our consciences don't come to the same conclusion. And so I want to look first at our obligation, our obligation in verses 1 and 2 of Romans, where Paul says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. The first obligation that we have is to bear with others' failings. It is to bear with others' failings. Who are the strong? I think that's usually what we want to know, right? We want to find a way to align our position with the strong. Well, I want to give you one general principle, and then I want to look at, at two uh, characteristics of the strong from this text. But the general principle is this, that both in Corinthians, if you look at chapters 8 through 10, and here in Romans 14 and 15, Paul seems to be operating from the assumption that the believer with greater freedom, not license to sin, we have to be clear about that, but that the, the believer with greater freedom of conscience is usually the stronger believer. And it is usually the, the believer who has less freedom of conscience who is the weaker. But I think one of the things that we can understand is that if we were to talk to the church in Rome, either side probably believes they are the strong. One side believes they're strong because they can participate in eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. 
Another side believes they are strong because they can abstain. One side believes they're strong because they are ready to jump in and go to church and not be afraid. And the other side believes they are strong for doing the hard work of staying separate, for love of neighbor. Both are striving to be obedient to God's Word as they understand it. And both are probably entrenched in a position that leads them to believe that they are strong. But here in these two verses, Paul gives us two characteristics of the strong. And the first characteristic is that the strong are more inclined to bear with the weaknesses of others. The strong are not so much those who are aligned with a certain position, but those who are willing to be most understanding and helpful to those with whom they do not agree. And secondly, the strong are more inclined to please others and not themselves. When somebody else disagrees with you on a matter of conscience and you perceive them to be weak in their conclusion, does it irritate you that they don't see things the same way you do? Does it frustrate you? Or does it draw your heart out in compassion and care for them? The strong are drawn out in compassion to the weak. I think the history of the church and the history of the world shows us that typically the strong use the weak to bear their burdens and make themselves more comfortable. And Paul flips this exactly on its head. He says, if you're strong, you don't have strength so that you can overpower others and cause them to, to see your things your way or to make things be your way or to ease and to eliminate your burdens. No, he calls for the strong to use their strength to bear the burdens of the weak. Look at what he says. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Leon Morris, in his commentary on Romans, says this. He says, even in the Christian church, the strong all too easily see it as unfair that their conduct should be modified on account of considerations that seem of no importance to them, even though these considerations form insurmountable problems for their weak brothers. The strong look in irritation on the weak for, for having to be... Uh, well, considerate of the needs and the concerns of others. I think the picture, uh, as, as I think about what it means to bear one another's burdens, and we see this same word in a very similar phrase in Galatians 6, but I think the, the picture that comes to my mind is that of a backpacker. Imagine two people on a backpacking trip, and one gets weary from whatever, from the length of the journey, from the load that he's carrying. A good friend might say, lighten your load. Let's move some stuff from your pack to my pack and hike out together. That is not the picture that Paul has in mind. The picture that Paul has in mind is of two backpackers, one of whom falls and breaks a leg and cannot walk himself out. And his companion picks him up and carries him home. That is the picture of of bearing 
the failings of the weak. Our second obligation is to please others and not ourselves. To please others and not ourselves. Paul here cannot be talking about tampering with the gospel for the sake of pleasing others in the book of Galatians. He, upon correcting the Galatian church for its aberrations of the gospel, says, am I now pleasing men or am I pleasing God? When it came to the truth of the gospel, Paul was unwavering. He was unwilling to please people by tampering with the gospel. But here, in matters of conscience, he calls for us to please others and not ourselves. I don't know how to clarify this any further. It is really that simple. We have an obligation not to please ourselves. And then in verse 2, it says this, let each of us please. If you haven't, I'll just speak to the ESV today. If you have an ESV today, this, this word let is usually an indication of an imperative. And here it is. Uh, the imperative mood in Greek is a command. Paul is not making a polite suggestion. He is saying, you must please your neighbor for his good to build him up. It is not a, a wish. Let is not wishful thinking. It is an imperative command. And it is simply, I mean, it is that simple. Our obligation is first to bear with others' failings, and secondly, to please others and not ourselves. As you think about how the church should respond to COVID or any other issue of conscience, who do you seek to please in your demands? Secondly, I want us to look, after having seen our obligation, I want us to see the motivation. Paul calls us to do difficult work here. This is not easy. This is, this is heart-battling work, and he doesn't fail to give us motivations. In fact, he gives us three motivations to look at. The first is Jesus' example. Jesus' example. In verse 3, he says, "'For Christ did not please himself,' But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is the first time in the book of Romans, here in chapter 15, almost all the way to the end, that Paul uses Jesus as an example. But I think Charles Hodge points out correctly that Jesus here is not mere example. He is motivation. Paul is saying, take a look at Jesus Your sin deserves reproach. Your sin deserves the reproach of God. Your sin deserves the reproach of others. It is unacceptable before a holy God. But rather than God's position being that of ultimate irritation and dissatisfaction and simply wiping us out, no, God's heart was drawn out for us in compassion. And in compassion, He became a man born of a virgin, lived a sinless life that you and I could not live, and died a death he did not deserve. Three days later, he rose from the dead as a statement not only of his victory, but so that by faith, when we trust Jesus and are identified with his death, and his death becomes our death, and his life becomes our life, we can be given eternal life simply by trusting in him. But he did not please himself. He bore our burdens. He sought our good for the glory of God. He bore our burdens to Calvary, 
and even to death. Again, listen to Leon Morris. He says, in light of what Jesus has done, can the strong in Christ's church insist on having their meat? And can the weak keep up their condemnation of their fellows? Jesus' position was not one of irritation, but of service. Not one of anger, but of substitute. Bearing our burdens to Calvary. Secondly, in verse 4, we see that, the, the, that for Paul, one of the motivations is Scripture's command. He says in verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. I started a blog this week, and I'm going to be blogging a little bit about this verse this week. Here, Paul tells us that the entirety of the Old Testament was written for the instruction of New Testament saints. We've got to be careful how we use it. There are right ways and wrong ways to relate to the law. But here, Paul says, uh, quoting Psalm 69.9 in verse 3, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. In other words, Paul is saying, Scripture commanded it, and that settles it. And for us, it should be the same thing. If Scripture commands it, that settles it. And so the first motivation for this, uh, this obligation of ours is the example of Jesus. The second motivation is Scripture's command. And the third motivation is hope. Look at the rest of verse 4. Well, let's look at all of verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. What is hope? Hope is simply future faith. It is simply future faith. Faith says, I believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus as my substitute, bearing the punishment for sins, and that in believing and trusting in Him, I can have eternal life. That changes everything now. Faith is a present reality, but biblically, hope is a future reality. It says, I know what the future holds is good because of the faith I have in Christ now. Not, not so much because of the faith, but because of the Christ in whom I have faith. Hope is simply the certainty of what's to come. Biblically, hope is never like wishful thinking. It's not like, I hope I win the lottery. Hope is the certainty of what the future holds, the joy as we look forward to what God has for us because of what Christ has already done for us. And I think all of us want hope. What is the motivation, the third motivation for our obedience to Christ? It's hope. It's hope of a perfected future without sin, without disagreement, without discord, in perfect unity, perfect harmony, together. I think maybe part of this is saying, look, y'all, we will live forever in heaven with one another as the church, as Christ's bride. We may as well start getting along now. But look at how hope comes. We want hope without these things usually because it is through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures that we might have hope. This is biblical math. Endurance plus Scripture equals hope. Most of us are fine with Scripture. Maybe some of us are not. 
I hope we all understand that dusty Bibles always lead to dirty lives. This book will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. But it is not just the Scripture that brings about hope. It is endurance. Hebrews remind us that it, that it, is, for the, it is because of the hope set before Him that Jesus endured the cross. So I think the question that, the beg, that, that, says, that this begs excuse me, is this. Is your hope being fueled by Fox News and CNN? Or is your hope being fueled by the Word of God? and by endurance. Jesus' example, Scripture's command, and our future hope are all great motivations for us to live up to our obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to please others, not ourselves. Thirdly, let's look at the culmination. Uh, uh, These couple of last words, they're a stretch, but I'm trying to alliterate. Uh, This is the result What is the result of bearing with one another and bearing with the failings of the weak, living out these motivations to not please others and please ourselves, where the first result is church harmony? The first result is church harmony. I think we all love the idea, oh, that the church might be a a harmonious and beautiful and peaceful place. But until you see things my way, it will not be such. Psalm 133.1 Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. What is harmony? It is multiple people, multiple voices, multiple instruments singing a different note to the same song. It is not unison. When Paul says that the church can dwell in harmony, when we say we love the harmony of the church, we are not saying that we all see everything exactly the same way. We are saying that we all sing the same tune and that the tune is the glory of Christ. And before we look at the second uh, culmination here, the second result, which is God's glory, I want to point out that in verse uh, 5, when Paul says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. He's using a, a, a mood in Greek that English does not have. It is the optative mood. The optative mood expresses a deep wish, not a possibility. There's another mood for that. This is a deep wish. What Paul is saying here is that it is, and the Holy Spirit through Paul, that it is the hope of the church. It is the strong wish. It is God's plan to grant us, and God has done everything necessary to grant it to us already, that we might live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Harmony in the church befits the gospel. If the gospel is the diamond of the church, the church's harmony is the ring. It is the setting in which the gospel is placed, that it might be seen in the fullness of its glory. And so the the second result is not only that the church dwells in harmony, 
but that God is glorified. Secondly, God's glory. Church unity brings glory to a triune God. Church unity brings glory to a unified God. Here's the reality in its most simple, in its most simple form, hard for us to hear. None of this is about you or me. It's all about God's glory. If another Christian disagrees with you politically about how the church should or shouldn't gather, about whether to wear masks or not, about stay-at-home orders, is Jesus enough for you to have unity to despite your differences? If you think you must wear a mask and you're having a conversation with somebody who insists on not wearing a mask, what do you see more in the other person? The mask or the lack thereof or Jesus Christ? Because that is what brings glory to God. Unity befits the gospel. Harmony glorifies God. And lastly, let's look at the prescription Paul sums all of this up. I should read verse 6, by the way. Uh, This unity and harmony that we live in, in accord with Christ Jesus, that, verse 6, together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, we see the prescription, the final orders from Paul. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is Paul's final orders. It is what we must do as a result of all of this, and we see this in two things. First, we must welcome one another. This idea of welcome means that that there is wholehearted acceptance among the saints. He starts out by addressing the weak and the strong. We can put the next point up on the slide. He starts by addressing the weak and the strong. And he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. But notice that the we is gone. There is no more division. He simply lumps the two together and he says, therefore, again in the imperative mood, a command, therefore, welcome one another. Welcome one another. But this word welcome is not a simple greeting. It is a much deeper word than that. It is a strengthened form of the verb to take or to receive towards one's self. The NIV and the NASB say accept. The New King James and the King James say receive. It is wholehearted acceptance of someone else. The picture here is not that when you disagree with someone, you give them a handshake in the foyer on your way into church, but that you take that whole person to yourself, that you receive them to yourself. If you refuse to be the church because the church doesn't do the things that your conscience is convicted of, you cannot obey this command. We must welcome. And why must we welcome? Because God has. And God has not welcomed us because of our obedience or our agreement with Him. He has welcomed us because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And if Here's the reality. Here's the, haunt that, the, the thought that haunts me sometimes. When I refuse to welcome another believer to myself because of matters that we disagree on, 
whether I say it or not, what I'm admitting is that I believe that the cross is enough to secure unity between that person and God, but not sufficient to secure unity between that person and me. See, in my own heart, when I refuse to have peace or unity or forgiveness with other Christians because of disagreement or sin or hurt or whatever it may be, it's because I have high views of myself and low views of the cross. Yes, yes, I know, God, that the cross secures your forgiveness for that person. Oh, but it is not sufficient to secure mine. We must welcome because God has their conscience and however it's seared is between them and God. Listen to Paul's words from the previous chapter. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can turn back to Romans chapter 14. Listen to what he says in verse 1, uh, 1 through 4. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That's a warning right there. To condemn somebody else, to condemn another Christian for matters of conscience for which you don't agree, is to put the Lord on their side against you. Oh, that ought to scare us. Look at verse 4 again. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Skip down to verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of, the, of a brother. In other words... Better to wear a mask than create division in the church. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Verse 17, here it is. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Spirit. We welcome others because Christ has welcomed us. And the second prescription, the second thing we must do is imitate Christ. Look at the strong words of verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as, or in the Greek, just as, in the same manner, Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. However it is you desire to cry of Christ or understand or believe Christ to be welcoming of you, 
That is how you are to welcome those whose consciences don't see things the same way you do, with wholehearted, open embrace. We accept others in the same manner Jesus has accepted us, whether we agree or whether we disagree, because the cross is sufficient to secure our unity, and it befits the gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. We thank you that you have reconciled us to yourself even while we were enemies sending your son to die for us. We thank you that you did not wait for us to be in absolute agreement, but you rescued us in our weakness, in our failures, in our sins. And Lord, I ask that Trinity Baptist might ever be a place that sees the unity that was purchased at Calvary for us as being sufficient to secure our unity. That we would see that if we can be unified to you, then we must be unified to each other. Father, may we do the hard and heart work of dying to ourselves of bearing with the failings of others, of not seeking to please ourselves, but seeking to please uh, those for whom you have died. And may the result be such harmony that is in accord with Christ that we might find it pleasant to dwell in unity with our brothers and sisters. And let it be for your glory and for the spread of the gospel in Walla Walla, and to the ends of the earth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Logan. As I listened to Logan's word this morning, one of the things that really struck me, and it always does when we open God's word, is how much... What was written 2,000 years ago can be applied so much to what we're living in today. And it's such an encouragement to see how, how God instructed us and in how we should live and how we should deal with each other. The same way that he, he talked to the Romans is the same way he's talking to us in the church today here in Walla Walla. So thank you for bringing that out, Logan. It was a great message to hear. I want to say hello again to everyone that's here this morning. To those that are watching online, I'm glad you're here with us this morning. 